Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and sadly, this is the last episode of Awesome Movie Year because Josh insists on having forever as the new theme song, where Dave and I both feel that faithful would be the way to go. We're going to war over this argument because that's the only solution possible um i mean it's not the craziest uh thing that people have gone for war for is it no that's true i mean i think that's the idea here in this film this is sort of a, a shift from our normal uh lineup that we do for most awesome movie years and this season we're talking about the films of 1939 and normally we do an episode on a documentary film but documentary as a form didn't really kind of blossom yet at this point. So there there wasn't really much of note for us to talk about. So we decided to switch it up and go with a different kind of filmmaking that I think in the past we've talked about doing a dedicated episode for this and other seasons, and we've never done it. But we decided to do an episode on an animated film, and we are talking about the Fleischer Brothers film Gulliver's Travels. Yes, of uh, which was so momentous that Jonathan Swift based his book on it <laughs> 300 or 200 years earlier. Yeah, yeah. He rose from the dead and said, what kind of crappy-ass movie did you make that you put my Where name we, on? Was it, did we do, uh, was it 2012 or were we, did we do 2012 or something? Yeah, we we did, did, didn't we? Yeah. That was going to be the year because I had Wreck-It Ralph and there was a lot of different animated movies that we thought we could do a full category on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've covered animated movies before in other categories, Disney movies, and we did Finding Nemo, the Pixar film. And just recently we did uh, Tokyo Godfathers as our uh, holiday special. So we've, we've done, I think, four or five other animated movies, but we've never had it as a specific episode category. And uh, who knows? Maybe we will again going forward. You never know. You don't. That's the thing about awesome movie here, Josh. We're full of surprises. We are, much like Gulliver. <laughs> yeah. Why doesn't Jonathan Swift write a chapter uh, or a section of a book on us? I think. I guess that would be a section, right? Because there were four full stories in there. Yeah, I think there's more than one chapter. I read Gulliver's Travels, uh, I think, in high school. I, but I don't really remember a whole lot about it. I don't know if you you didn't read any books in high school, right? I just read them, and you copied my homework. Uh, that's true. I did use <laughs> Gulliver's Travels as a punchline to an old joke, though, because in the uh, airport here in Las Vegas, they have all the signs for the different attractions and the different shows. And there used to be a sign up for the uh, the library, the public library. And I was just thinking, like, they really have mistargeted who they're advertising to. Like, I don't see a bunch of dudes coming in on bachelor parties like, let's get strippers and do coke and party all night. And the, the groom's like, nah, you guys do that. I'm going to go. Read Gulliver's Travels at the library. <laughs> they do have it at the library. So they could have put up a sign for the, does that still exist? The strip club called the library? That would have been more I appropriate, I think. I had never been there, but I, I thought of all the strip clubs. That would have been a fun one to go to because it was on Boulder Highway, away from everything. It's it's like, you know, it's not the top of the line, shall we say. <laughs> well, it's too bad that Gulliver <laughs> never came to Las Vegas. <laughs> would, he, would, would he even fit, Josh? He'd be right next to the stratosphere. Well, he's normal size. It's the the Lilliputians who are small. I think is yeah. The Brob the Brobdignagians are the giants. Yeah, they might have travels. trouble, but uh, Gulliver yeah. would fit right in here. See, you corrected me, just like uh, you used to do with our homework. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, this film was the second ever animated feature film produced by an American studio. Uh, of course, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937 was the first, and that was the first ever uh, hand-drawn animated film, period. And that had been a huge success, so it's not surprising that other studios decided to capitalize on that. Paramount Pictures released this film and hired the Fleischer brothers, Max and Dave Fleischer, and their studio to create it um, under a very tight timeline of 18 months. It was originally set to star Popeye, who was the star of a bunch of Fleischer Brothers shorts and was going to be sort of the Gulliver figure. Um, That actually has something that had already been done by Disney. There's a Mickey Mouse short from a, a few years before this where he fills the Gulliver role going to Lilliput, but eventually they decided to make it uh, an original piece just based on the book and really based on that one section of the book where Gulliver travels to Lilliput. He, I think, as Jason, you said, there's four sections, right? And he goes to like four or five different weird places. Yeah, he, he goes to Lilliput where they're doing the war. He goes to the Brogdignabians, right? Where they're all giants and he's small, right? I think there's a, a one where there's a flying island, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. And they like uh, they they drop things on their enemies below or something like that. Hey, that's fun, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And then the fourth voyage, he lives w- with sentient horses in the land of Hunhims. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. All you literary scholars out there, please correct me. But honestly. Those other stories sound pretty cool. Why don't we ever get them? Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think partly that's like a lot to include in especially just in a, a single feature film and partly because this movie did so well uh, and is so well known that people just think of Gulliver's Travels as this one particular story and that's what ends up being adapted. It was. Don't you want to see Yorgos Lanthimos uh, direct a Gulliver's Travels where he's in a land of sentient horses? Actually, that would be great. I feel like maybe that's part of the problem is that somewhere along the line, again, maybe because of the success of this movie, although even before this, right, we'd had Mickey Mouse doing it. People think of this as like a children's story, even though I don't think that's at all what Jonathan Swift intended it to be. And so we don't get weird adult films like uh, something by Yorgos Lanthimos uh, adapting Gulliver's Travels, but maybe that's the way to go. I mean, to me, when you were just talking about Mickey Mouse in it, what I thought is like, hey, you know, um, Steamboat Willie, it's now public domain. We're getting all these horror movies. Why aren't we getting the Gulliver horror movie where he's just going to the, or an action movie where he's going and just effing people up? That's And maybe he could use his sentient horses and his flying uh, <laughs> friends to, to mess people up. That's true. I mean, Gulliver's Travels, the book, has been in the public domain. I mean, it was published so you know hundreds of years ago, so anyone could do it. And this film, too, is in the public domain if you wanted to use any of the designs or anything like that from this movie. It had been previously adapted, Gulliver's Travels, including in 1902 was the very first adaptation by George Méliès. And it's a it's a four minute silent film. And yet it actually does adapt to more of the story than this does. He travels to Lilliput and he also goes to the Brobdignagians where he is small and they are very large. And uh, it's quite good. Um, I watched it online and, you know, it's four minutes. It's silent, but it's really impressive to see what Melies can do with the, the early special effects that he developed uh, all the way back in 1902. 
Yeah, I got to watch that. I watched uh, uh, A Voyage to the Moon recently mm, again. Yeah. Trip to the Moon. What are we calling it? Yeah, I, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you might remember it. You, you 90s kids as the uh, basis for the, the Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight video. But um, it's a cool, it's such a cool uh, short. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, not just a father of filmmaking, but like he was, he was really ahead of his years, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- you can see sort of the seams of what he's doing in camera, but it still looks quite impressive. And it has this this surrealist quality to it that's very captivating. So I don't think we're ever going to do like awesome movie year 1902. So we'll probably never get a George Miller like all, all four minutes. Right, uh... Exactly. But uh, it's fascinating to watch that stuff. So also, there had been the Mickey Mouse short film, there was an Austrian silent film, and there was a, a feature film, a Soviet film, that used stop-motion animation for most of its running time, which was the first ever feature film featuring stop-motion animation. So adapting this story is like a way to do groundbreaking things in early film for whatever reason. The Russian movie. Gulliver looks at tank yeah. back on Gulliver, same expression. Gulliver looks at woman wanting soup back on Gulliver, same expression. It's uh, it's the the, what, the Eisenstein. Yeah, exactly. Right? The Eisenstein technique. That was a, a deep film joke for you guys right there. Uh, I think it does reinterpret <laughs> it as a sort of like socialist parable, but I didn't I didn't watch that movie. I don't know how available it is. Hey, I did read uh, the Jonathan Swift, uh, A Modest Proposal back in the day. Or you're talking about how this is a kid's movie and that the whole, you know, Swiftian is what we, uh, you know, interpret as satire a lot. And that that was the modest proposal was that um, to, to get rid of hungry people, we, we feed them children. Yeah. And that was a fun that was a fun read. That, I, I think we read that in school, too. Maybe that was very short. And so you were uh, you were able to read that one. <laughs> yeah. Also, it was a little more like, hey, they're going to eat the kids. Let's <laughs> let's see what that's about. Right. So. Right. Obviously, a, uh, a satire. So um, the animation here is it was interesting to me because, you know, this is trying to capitalize on the success of Snow White. And you can see, especially in the design of the Lilliputians, that they have some resemblance to like the seven dwarfs and stuff like that. But they used rotoscoping to animate Gulliver as well as the prince and princess. And you can see in the film, especially with Gulliver, you know, that they look much more like realistically human. And partly that was because of this very tight timeline that they had to finish the film. But I feel like it actually works well because it gives you the real contrast between Gulliver, the person from our world, and this this strange world of the Lilliputians that he has discovered. You alluded to this, Josh, uh, in a prior statement. The animation is not the problem with this film. Right. It's the stretching of the story, and um, it's it's not very good in that regard. Right. I mean, I think not only do they have to just use the one section of the book, but they very much have to find ways to make it into this kind of kid-friendly, you know, fairy story and uh, put cute, goofy characters in it and stuff like that. And, uh, And the prince and princess, who are not characters, I believe, from the book, give them a little romance and all this stuff that's really copying what Disney had done. And um, yeah, it does not go well, really. But but the animation is beautiful. I mean, whatever it was, if they were, you know, under this really uh, difficult deadline, like they did a great job. I think they they made it look beautiful. 
Yeah, I I agree. I like the animation. I have issues with uh, other elements of this. Yes. So it was a success, though. It grossed $3.27 million on its budget of $700,000, which was still over budget. And the Fleischers got uh, fined or charged by Paramount for going over budget, even though this movie was a hit. So Yeah, what a bunch of dicks. Can I just stop you right there? Because like <laughs> these guys, they basically moved their entire operation to Miami, right, from New York. And um, they had to hire like 700 new people. They had this, uh, I think they were saying it took half the time that it took to get Snow White done, yeah. right? They got it done. It made a ton of money and they still find them like, you're, you, and that you know that's part of why this company went out of business not too long after that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Paramount essentially used that as leverage to take over the company a couple of years later. So, yeah, a Hollywood studio did something shady. I, I don't know how we can be shocked <laughs> by that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's crazy. And that was Barney Balaban, who was the head of Paramount at the time. Shame Josh. on you, Barney Balaban. Um. <laughs> This film was also nominated for two Oscars for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Faithful Forever, which lost to uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, as it should have, really. Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm not. I'm not as familiar with the other songs uh, in the 1939 uh, Oscars, but uh, that's not a great song, Faithful and Forever. No, it's not. I mean, and it's really like more just a plot device than a. A song. I mean, it is a song, but it's just as you were sort of referencing earlier, the idea that these two kingdoms each have their own particular song that they insist on playing at the wedding of the prince and princess. And that's what leads to their dispute. It's really more about that and how they can resolve it rather than like what a great song this is. Yeah, it's not a great song. No. Um, but um, it is the impetus for war. So I give it that. Much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an achievement, really. So uh, critics were mildly positive on this, although everyone compared it to Snow White, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, and, and I don't blame them. I compared it to Snow White when I watched it, you know, last week. Right, right. Yeah, that's, it's reasonable to do that. So Frank S. Nugent in The New York Times said, We have no hesitation in recommending Paramount's new film as a pleasant and diverting animated picture book drawn in the brightest technicolor happily free from ogres, hobgoblins, and other nightmare breeders, and so broad in its humor that the littlest four-year-old can scarcely miss its jokes. But by any other standards than those of the juvenile audience, the film is so far beneath the level of Mr. Disney's famous fantasy that, out of charity, we wish we did not have to make the comparisons demanded by professional responsibility. If it were only possible to soften the blow by suggesting that the second feature cartoon automatically loses the novelty value of the first, we should be cushioning our typewriter with the excuse right now. But it is far more than novelty that Gulliver lacks. It is the wit, the freshness, the gaiety and sparkle, the subtlety, the characterization, and for that matter, the good drawing that are the trademarks of the Disney factory. So... I'll get I'll get rid of the good drawing part because I agree with you. The animation is really cool here. Yeah, and I I definitely think so. Especially like the backgrounds or you know you can't say those aren't well drawn. They're beautiful. Um, I a hundred percent agree that the characters aren't um, characters are nothing. Yeah, even Gulliver is nothing here, right? Gulliver you know, is like... unconscious for half this movie. <laughs> Literally <laughs> unconscious. <laughs> so. You know, there's nothing to the characters. We already mentioned the songs don't compare to like Hi Ho or, you know, 
any other that you want to pick from what do you want to pick from snow white well i mean i think hi-ho is is a good example because they're clearly trying to like imitate that with the little working song for the lilliputians right yeah and the thing is they had all these like you know besides the kings you know they had like these other workers they could have made them into different characters it just felt like it was maybe that was the rush job here it's like hey we got to animate so let's just uh go as straight line as possible right yeah they could have spent a little more time on the writing or whatever or figured out a better way to adapt this book perhaps but uh, maybe they didn't read it yeah, it's not it, they might have just read a summary of it it's possible no i mean uh i mean like you said like i'm like dude how long is this guy going to be tied down for right i seriously i was looking at the because this is a very short movie and i was looking at the running time and it is it is more than half a little over half of the running time before gulliver literally like wakes up and speaks and he is the title character of the film and he doesn't he's just all he is is like a, a beacon of uh good judgment or doing the right thing i guess like there's no real character to gulliver either right and i think gulliver in the book is you know representative of sort of like the english everyman or whatever and he becomes kind of corrupted and and whatnot over time and you know there's none of that satirical element here really that they take from the book right they literally go to war because they can't decide which song to play on the wedding and there's no kind of humor encapsulated in that in this in this piece yeah so uh variety in their unbylined review said two years ago walt disney released the first feature-length cartoon snow white and the seven dwarfs its novelty production excellence and entertainment factors rolled up terrific grosses for all gulliver's travels is the second cartoon feature to hit the market turned out by max fleischer who has been making cartoon shorts for 20 years it is an excellent job of animation, audience interest, and all-around showmanship. On the entertainment side, Gulliver's Travels is a thoroughly enjoyable package of entertainment for the whole family. It's a fantastic and whimsical tale that can't help but please all those who see it. Well, like you said, I, uh, it was a big hit. It came out around Christmas time, and um, they immediately kind of greenlit the the follow-up, which was not a sequel, but was going to, again, involve like similar characters and ended up being a different thing. But it, it was a big hit at the time. Right. Yeah. Variety, you know, always concerned mainly with whether something is going to do well at the box office. And and they were correct that it did. But, you know, I, I don't know that this is a movie even at the time. I mean, as as the New York Times is saying, like for adults, this is pretty lacking where I feel like I haven't seen Snow White in a long time, but I feel like generally Disney movies have a decent appeal to adults. And I imagine that's probably the case for that, even at the beginning. I think so. I think, I mean, like, you, you know, uh, to reiterate, this was made because Snow White was so successful. So instead of building on that, right. As, uh, you know, it's, it's not a new trend, right? right. Hey, this was successful. Let's do a cheaper, uh, uh, a quicker version of it. And, who cares if it's as good? It, it'll be it'll be a thing. Right. I mean, the thing that's sad about that, though, is that it's not like people who don't know what they're doing. I mean, as Variety says there, the Fleischers are pioneers of animation just as much as Walt Disney is. And they'd been making shorts for decades with, you know, some iconic characters like Popeye and Betty Boop. But, you know, because they were put in the position maybe to rush through this, they weren't able to create the kind of movie that they had the potential to create. Yeah, I mean, Max Fleischer, they said, 
you know, you mentioned rotoscoping. He was the one who pioneered that technique. Um, you know, when there's a song and you follow the bouncing ball on the words, he he started with that thing. Um, so there's a lot of different things that these guys were capable of doing that I don't think they really got to do. Um, although they're animators and they animated the the F out of this. They one, did. Gosh. They did. That's one thing that they succeeded at. So uh, Richard L. Coe in the Washington Post was uh, not as happy with this. He said, fairy tale, satire, romance, and sermon, Gulliver's Travels delights the younger generation as much as it would disgust Jonathan Swift. Mm. For it is through the fairy story appeal to children that Dave Fleischer has decided he can achieve the widest audience for his 75-minute comic strip version of one of the world's bitterest satires. But it is this very definitely infantile appeal which will limit the film's staunchest admirers to the younger generation. The insertion of a prosaic romance into a story with enough novel motivation to fill a dozen films even further restricts this Gulliver within the realm of childhood. For what it is, however, we must admit Gulliver's travels will very likely charm the children at a time of year when they are traditionally to be charmed. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't blame the Fleischers. I'm sure that was the directive of Paramount. Like, hey, make a kid's movie. Right. It's animated, right? Yeah, so. no, totally. But if you are a Washington Post critic, you've probably read Jonathan Swift and can imagine that this is not the way you would hope for this story to come to a, the film. And that's why all of my writing is relegated to all these local papers out here, Josh, because I haven't read... Uh, Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. Mm. I don't think that's the reason. But uh, <laughs> given that you haven't read Gulliver's Travels, uh, anything else you want to say about the uh, background here, Jason? Uh, Gulliver's Travels became a holiday film from uh, Thanksgiving to Christmas. Um, and it was re-released uh, in theaters all the way through the 60s. So you could watch it on TV in the 50s. You could see it in the movies in the the 60s, whatever we say, it, it did fine. Um, but Paramount still gave them the old screw job, Josh. They did, yeah. And, and another company also gave them the screw job because at one point when rights to Fleischer films were sold, they lapsed and that's why it's now in the public domain and you can watch it like everywhere. And that, you know, as happens with some movies like It's a Wonderful Life or Night of the Living Dead, when they're accidentally in the public domain, it often means that they're much more widely seen um, which is the case, I think, with this film. But it also means that uh, the people who were behind the making of the film didn't get uh, paid they later in get their that lives. money. Right. Yeah. So um, the, the film spun off to uh, Fleischer cartoon series, the Gabby series and the animated antics, Josh. Yeah. Gabby. You like those? Gabby. Well, Gabby is the, um, the like town crier character here who uh, discovers Gulliver on the beach and uh, kind of uh, brings the word to Lilliput. So I haven't seen the, the shorts that they made after this, but he's certainly a recognizable character from this. I mean, when you were watching this, were you like, hey, that guy needs his own show? No, not at all. And I mean, I'm not really sure how they created his further adventures uh, without Gulliver, but uh, I did not look into that to find out. Maybe he just went around to different places and, and yelled about the things that were going on. <laughs> that sounds about right for a cartoon <laughs> series from the 1940s, honestly. So, um, Jason, you know, given that this was so widely distributed, did you watch this as a kid? No. Oh, okay. I saw did this you? many times, I believe, as a kid. Whoa, this really? This movie, you know, we just talked about The Wizard of Oz. This movie was as prevalent when I was a kid as The Wizard of Oz. 
for whatever reason, I think, you know, in part because it was in the public domain. Um, I actually just mentioned it to my mom when we were uh, having dinner the other day. And I said, oh, we must have had like a VHS of this when I, when I was a kid. And she said that we did. And I think also it was on TV a lot. And so this was another movie that I saw like bits and pieces of so many times and may or may not have actually sat down and watched from beginning to end. But it was very familiar to me. And for years, mm -hmm. I just assumed it was a Disney movie because, you know, we had all those other Disney movies on VHS or whatever. And this was animated. And I figured it was one of those as well. But of course, it isn't. But yeah, I definitely this was like a childhood staple for some reason for me. And what feelings did that bring up upon this watching, Josh? Well, no feelings, really. Just kind of like, oh, I recognize that. I mean, I don't even think mm. it was a, like a favorite. It was just there, you know? It was just on. Maybe my sister or my brother liked it. And so they were putting it on and I was in the room too or something. I was hoping you would reveal something mm. dark about your past no, or nothing, something nothing. you're longing for, you for know. What, travels? Or... You know, small rosebud, whatever. Yeah, no, no, not, not the case. So, Dave, did you watch this as a kid? I genuinely do not remember, but I probably did at some point. And I uh, considered this for my pick for this season when we first were talking about 1939. Oh, okay. Are you uh, regretting that you didn't pick this? Nah. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're covering yeah, it, so true. I don't yeah, see why it that's would. That's true. So. Fair yeah. enough. All right, we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Gulliver's Travels. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about our animation pick, Gulliver's Travels from the Fleischer Brothers. And uh, Jason, as you said, uh, story-wise, this movie does not really hold together very well. I don't think there is a story. I did get this note, Josh. The the novel Gulliver's Travels, published in 1726, was a political satire. Uh, Lilliput was created as a satire of Great Britain, while Blefescu was a satire of France. Their longstanding geopolitical rivalry was a satire of the recurring wars between England and France. And Jonathan Swift was a clergyman, an Irish clergyman. See, Josh, I can copy things off of Wikipedia. You sure can, but those things are but, accurate, I believe. But it's, you know, here, let me give you a, let me, look, even the song that we've talked about, the forever and faithful, like we have to do this, no, we have to do this. It's the same fucking song. Well, I think that's like, the point, right? I mean, to, to give this movie a small amount of credit, like the specifics about songs uh, being played at a wedding may not be from the novel, but the idea of these two kingdoms going to war over something silly and irrelevant is what Swift is satirizing. And as you said, these repeated wars between England and France over issues of, you know, whatever it, it was at the time of the of royal succession or something like that are, are things that he obviously thought were petty and ridiculous. And so in their own kind of dumbed down, kid-friendly way, I think they're attempting to capture that here. Okay, I can buy that, but I don't think it's executed uh, well because, you know, like no one recognizes the same song until they recognize that the song could be put together the same way. I just, I don't know. I don't, is that, would it have been more effective if it was a different song, you know, or I don't know. The whole bit maybe just doesn't work. Maybe that's the issue. Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's not generally well executed, but I think them being the same song is the point that these two, you know, 
kingdoms, they're so entrenched in their own worlds and the idea that we're better than the other one that they couldn't even see that until Gulliver, you know, the benevolent outsider or whatever comes in and is like, hey guys, guess what? They're the same. Just combine them. Thank you. I'm leaving. Um, yeah. I talked to my uh, sentient horses friends and they told me this is what you should do. Yeah. And, um, you know, he solves their problems or whatever. So, I mean, I was okay with that, I guess, sort of as a concept, because again, I feel like this is probably the Fleischer sitting there like, okay, how can we encapsulate some of what Jonathan Swift is trying to do, but in a way that will fit with this kid focused animated movie. And it's, you know, we have to have songs because it's got to be a musical and all this stuff. And that's a way to make that work. Yeah. I look, I don't have a problem with that. You got to just have bones to this thing. And there's no bones. It's just kind of like a shapeless blob, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and even that that we're talking about so much as like sort of the central conflict of the film is really a, a relatively minor element. I mean, you've got Gulliver himself showing up on uh, on the beach and that very long sequence where they build this kind of giant scaffolding around him so they can transport him into the town. And what are we going to do with Gulliver and being afraid of him and all, all this stuff that's that's outside of just this dispute between the kingdoms. Right. There are missed opportunities. We spend so much time on the like, hey, we've uh, we've we've locked Gulliver down. We've they were able to transport him. But, you know, the beginning of the movie is like, here's a it's like a manuscript, the page, right? Where you say like, and and, and here's a tale of my greatest adventure, right? There's not really an adventure. <laughs> He's sleeping through half of it. The sh- I mean, we could maybe do an opening sequence with a big shipwreck or something, right? And like up the excitement on this thing and incorporate him more. Uh, I mean, he's just there and then he's talking to the king. He doesn't really learn how the island works or the societies or anything. I mean, you know, even as a peacemaker, I feel like he could have understood these societies in a deeper ways, Josh. Right. And I think a lot of the book is about him traveling to these different societies and learning all about their rules and customs and understanding them and how they're different from present day at the time English society. And that's kind of the point of what Swift is doing. And that's none of that is going on here. And that that would be fun. I mean, there's a lot of you know, fodder you could get out of that, I think. Right. I mean, the question again is like, how do you sort of adjust that so that it becomes a kid-friendly thing? And maybe that's not something that they could figure out. And also that it's, you know, 75 minutes long and you got to put a bunch of songs in there. But I, I mean, I agree. There's a lot of missed opportunities where you could still adapt this book and change it to suit the kind of movie that you're trying to make, but capture more of what the book itself is actually about. I think kind of we we probably guessed it right in that, hey, man, you have to have this out by Christmas of 1939. So, you know, pick two or three big set pieces, build around that and then, uh, you know, put in some campy, you know, happy songs and, and we'll get the movie going as opposed to actually structuring this thing. Right. And that like Gabby character, for example, you can imagine after them being so successful with those shorts where they have these ongoing wacky characters like Popeye or Betty Boop that they're looking at it like, hey, look, if we put this Gabby guy in here, maybe we can spin him off and make him one of our signature characters like those other ones, even if he doesn't necessarily fit in like the story of Gulliver's Travels. Um, We keep comparing it to Disney, but I think a, a more, maybe a more apt comparison is to Artem because they take really simple stories with really, really 
basic plots um, and they blow those things out. So the, the set pieces are really involved and kind of, um, you know, they, they not only are involved, but they encapsulate the audience's attention in such a way. You know, Chicken Run is basically how do the chickens escape the coop or Shaun of the Sheep. Like they're all such simple stories, but they're done in such great, brilliant ways that I think that would be something more that I would have wanted from this. Yeah, I'd love to see an Aardman version of Gulliver's Travels. I feel like that could be a good source material for that. Like if someone is going to make a Gulliver's Travels that might actually be worth watching, you know, whether it's Yorgos Lanthimos or Ardman Animation, one of those, maybe they could team up somehow to make a, a Gulliver's Travels movie. I mean, Ar Ardman would make such a cool looking piece too. Right, right. I mean, and, and, and hey, like I said, you know, that Soviet film from years before this even was made with stop motion. So it was obviously something that was thought of as a way to, to represent this story all that long ago too. Right. Even you could see with like an Ardman piece, right? It would be Gulliver's tied down and he's coming up with strange ways to try to escape before he gets to the king. You know, the wars would be much more Rube Goldberg contraptions and it would be there's a lot of fun to be had with this material. And I think we keep coming back to the point that we missed the fun. Yeah. Did Were there any moments in this film that you thought were fun or creative? I mean, I, I thought the last battle where, you know, it, it, he's walking into the sea and they're firing like these cannonballs at him and they look like just little specks because he's a, a giant. Um, and, and, you know, I liked looking at the, the, the movie. I liked lo the look of it, of course, but I, I was just pretty bored throughout. Yeah, I definitely I think Dave said this in his letterbox and I, I concurred that it was hard to stay awake through a lot of this film. <laughs> Actually, I watched the movie and then I was going afterwards to do, to put together some notes and I was looking at the plot summary and I was like, oh shit, I just missed this one part and I had to go back and luckily because it's in the public domain, the movie itself is on the Wikipedia page and I skimmed back through it to say like, oh, to like remind myself what I had possibly been nodding off during a couple parts of this film. So yeah, it is very dull. It's almost like uh, like a lullaby. <laughs> for children in a way you could put this on and, and lull your child to sleep i mean this this should have been the four minute movie this could have been a nice four minute movie right and obviously that's something that the fleischers were good at making movies that were probably about four minutes and you know storytelling wise it's tough to level up from that to something that's even a short feature even 75 minutes yeah i i again i think i look i don't know these fleischers josh <laughs> yeah I'm sure they were more than capable of getting it done. I think that they were put in a situation that um, uh, they had to dig themselves out of a hole, which they did do, yet they still were charged $350,000 for doing right. it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and I agree. I think if they were given more time and maybe given more leeway, they could have produced something that would have been stronger as a as a piece of storytelling. So I did think there were some moments that I I liked. I mean, like you said, the animation is so gorgeous is that when they can combine that in there, you know, use the visuals to make some kind of impressive set piece. I mean, I liked the bit where the Lilliputians kind of put on a, a show for Gulliver and he's sitting there eating dinner or whatever at like a table, which is really like a giant cliff. And they kind of do this dance. And at one point he puts his giant hand down and he's like dancing with the king or whatever, like his fingers are, right. are, are you know, then the king is slow dance. Right, exactly. And I thought that was a creative way to demonstrate the size difference and that it, it had a sort of 
beauty to it, like a dance number from a, a live action musical or whatever. And obviously something you could never do in live action. So moments like that, where it's like they can combine the visual creativity that they're good at with some element of the story that they can bring to life were nice, I thought. Yeah. And I mean, you know, right now I'm thinking about Pixar, right? Where you can make a movie, you can watch the movie and be like, this doesn't work. Let's resequence this, which you have that ability to do with animation. Sure, that's CGI. It's a little different. But, you know, with the time, you can make these things happen. So I don't know. I just I there was just very little to connect with here. Um, Dave, you want to talk about the uh, music? I mean, you were talking about the songs being unmemorable. I mean, I didn't really think much of the music necessarily either. I mean, to me, it was just all animation. The animation was great. Everything else was kind of second rate. I mean, you said yeah. you were going to maybe make this your pick, Dave. Was there some particular thing you liked about it? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly such a major inspiration on Sam Raimi and Army of Darkness. So that's why. And like like I said, I think I might have seen it as a kid. Um, you know, this was definitely one of those movies that was around but I've always known of it as, you know, that movie that inspired the entire middle sequence of Army of Darkness. So that's why I was really looking forward to uh, rewatching it for this. I haven't seen Army of Darkness in a while. Like, is Ash, does he go to a place where he's a giant? He gets split into all these little miniature ashes and they, you know, they jump on top of him and tie him down, just like with Gulliver on the beach. But it takes place inside of a windmill, so it's a little different. But basically the same sequence and i guess the original script it was like an even bigger sequence it was like 10 minutes longer in the original script for army of darkness so i mean it was like a big you know element of the story so it's just one portion of that film not the movie as a whole yes okay yeah oh, cool yeah. yeah i mean i can see that that the visual creativity of this film especially again because it ended up in the public domain because it was shown on tv so much and re-released in theaters so much that Someone like Sam Raimi might have seen it as a kid and been captivated by the way that it looked and incorporated that into later, maybe better films that they made. <laughs> sure. I mean, Dave, this is your chance, man. Gulliver versus Kong. <laughs> I'm down. Well, but Kong, do like Gulliver is a normal human sized person. <laughs> Once again, it would just be Josh. like Jason versus Kong or whatever. Like, I mean, and not no. Jason Voorhees, but you, Jason. <laughs> You're again, you're thinking too linearly, right? He's already <laughs> made all these friends. So he, he, first of all, he has friends who are giants, the Proctignavians, right. right? So he can recruit them. He has sentient horses. He's got flying, uh, whatever they are, creatures, people, I don't know. You know, he's got a uh, little tiny uh, Lilliputians. So uh, he's got a whole army, a cadre of characters to help him fight Kong, Josh. Although I feel like isn't... Josh, do you think that maybe Jason is a Lilliputian and that's why he keeps thinking of Gulliver as being big? <laughs> Jason, is, is what's happening? I understand that Gulliver is normal size, guys. Let's just get this clear. But Gulliver versus Kong, I would watch that movie. I would well, say. also, I think, I mean, again, I haven't read the book in a very long time, but I think part of the point is that none of these people are his allies, that he goes to these places and then he like, messes with them and they kick him out and they don't like him so well i mean he just he just basically bartered a peace treaty between these two nations that were at war true. and created a unity for the marriage of prince and princess prince david i think maybe and, and uh, princess glory was her name that, that right? could be it yeah um, Again, two characters who offer nothing. Right. Yeah, no, that <laughs> yeah. is their names. But yeah, they barely even speak those characters. Mostly they just kind of like stand there and look longingly 
off into the distance and and sing a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, if they're trying to copy Disney, like there's nothing to this character compared to like even Snow White and Prince Charming from the Disney Snow White movie. Well, I mean, and the seven dwarves, like, you know, I mean, just by their names, you know, their characters, right? True. So, you know, you can see dopey or grumpy in your head. Right what about now, Gabby? He's he he gabs because <laughs> he's Gabby. So, that's what I was just going to say. Can you tell me what Gabby looks like right now, Josh? He looks like one of the seven dwarfs is really what he looks okay. like. <laughs> well, of course, they used a lot of the same talent, a lot of the same voice uh, actors and animators probably that, that Disney did. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, Pinto Kolvig, who plays Gabby, is also the original voice of Goofy. So they definitely brought over some serious talent from Disney to use in this film. Gabby versus Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, mm. why not? <laughs> we had Ban- we had Bambi gonna... versus Godzilla. That's a thing, yeah. you know. I'm just gonna gossip that monster back into the sea. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna keep. Uh... Jason's really into the verses. You know, we had uh, Jean Dielman versus Barry Lyndon back a couple <laughs> seasons a, ago. That's still our yeah. best movie pitch in the history of, <laughs> of this show. That's uh, yeah, that is quality. So I think, um, you know, what would happen is John Dealman would um, maybe stab someone, but it would be a fake stabbing, much like how they got rid of Barry Lyndon out, uh, out of the uh, arist- aristocratic setting that he was so beholden to. I feel like Gulliver, in a way, is kind of like Barry Lyndon in that he's this or he's meant to be this sort of like uh, bumbler who, you know, has thinks more highly of himself. And that's why he he stumbles into these various strange worlds and decides that he knows best what's what they should be doing well i think i you and i have interpreted this character differently because i just see him as an explorer and again like using the evidence of creating peace between two warring nations i don't see him as a bumbler in fact he was basically like hey you two you're in love you get married and they're like yeah gulliver you're right so then uh if anything, he's the opposite of that, you know? Right. No, you're right in that that's the way he's presented here. I think what I'm saying is that the way he is meant to be presented in the book is more like a Barry Lyndon kind of figure rather than the way they have him in the film. Looks like we got to have another spinoff besides Spiel the Burns on Book Club (laughs) podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're like, Feel the Burns, no one else is doing. I'm sure there are plenty of uh, podcasts where people read books and discuss them. I mean, that's pretty. What common. if we on on the book club podcast reviewed Ed Burns's book, Independent Ed, which I've read? I feel like that's maybe better <laughs> suited to the Field of Burns podcast, where that would be like the culmination. You know, we watch all eight or whatever Ed Burns films, and then we reread his book. You know, feel the book. Yeah, that's that's the <laughs> that's the finale of that of that uh series that we are never ever going to create but uh what if ed burns played gulliver i mean he could do it josh i think we've run out of material i I think so i think so too that's fair you want to rate this out of uh i don't know five uh little people five lilliputs five lilliputians lilliputians Yeah. yeah so um it only gets two for me, and it's all for the animation, Josh. Two Lilliputians. Yeah, I'm going to give it two and a half, but I think it's for the same reason for the animation. That is really gorgeous. And like I said, you know, a handful of moments here and there that I thought were kind of cleverly done. But overall, this is more of a historical curiosity, I think, than a great I, film. 
I know, but even saying that, I think we would have been better served watching uh, some of the, you know, Betty Boop cartoons and some of their their shorter works, like you said, Popeye and everything. Right. Like that. Yeah, maybe more entertaining. So, Dave, how would you rate this? Yeah, I'm going two and a half, but same thing that both of you said. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about our animation pick, Gulliver's Travels, from the Fleischer Brothers. And uh, as we said, unfortunately, despite the fact that this movie was a big hit, it essentially ultimately led to the downfall of Fleischer Studios. They were in debt to Paramount Pictures because of going over budget on this. And even though they got the green light to make another feature film because of the success of this. Uh, that movie, unfortunately, Mr. Bug Goes to Town, which was released in 1941, was a box office failure. It had the misfortune to be released, I think, like two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, like those uh, you know movies that came out right before 9-11 or whatever, and uh, people were not in the mood for going to see Mr. Bug at that time. And eventually... That led to Paramount kind of pushing out the Fleischers, taking over the studio and renaming it Famous Studios and making it sort of Paramount's own animation division. Have you seen Mr. Bug Goes to Town? I have not. And it's not really like a well-known film, although I don't know, maybe if we do an awesome movie year on 1941, we could talk about it as the flop of the year. I'm, I mean, we've, we're definitely going to do 1941. We know how many big things have come out there. Yeah, so. that is true. So maybe we'll get to that. But... It was not a success. I think it it has been maybe reassessed a bit. I saw just skimming the entry on that, that it was actually released as part of some sort of Studio Ghibli collection at one point. Maybe it's mm. a, a Miyazaki influence or something like that. So that's interesting. Well, I watched it. Oh. And, uh, just to sum it up for you. I'm Mr. Bug and I'm here and I'm going to filibuster oh. until you yeah. give me this town, okay. this camp for these these bugs, these little bugs, I need a camp to go to. I'll, I'll read the whole bug constitution if I have to. For a second, I thought you would actually watch this movie, and I was interested <laughs> to hear what you thought of it, but uh, you just wanted to do your bad Jimmy Stewart impression again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bad, bad Jimmy Stewart is making a lot, lot of appearances this season. Yeah. Uh, and uh, good Jimmy Stewart made a lot of appearances in 1939. He did. He did indeed. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's disappointing that they were, like, these pioneers, again, of animation with all of those shorts that they made prior to this. And they did later make other shorts. I mean, they're very famous for the Superman short films, and that started after this. So that was something that they did that still made a huge impact. But this was really sort of the beginning of the end for Fleischer Studios. And uh, they did make eight shorts with Gabby, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real bummer. Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny. Gabby. Gabby. Yeah. So no, I would, it would, I mean, you know, like Betty Boop's iconic and it would have been, I don't know. I, it just seems like these guys got a real raw deal. So it's a, it's a bummer because you know, they they were doing their own style of animation and, and that could have been uh, really, really, uh, you know, fruitful and into for decades to come right and you could see you know just like disney built up to doing animated movies based on or incorporating some of their early shorts characters you know you could have seen eventually a betty boop feature film or a popeye animated feature film or an animated superman feature film or something like that that could have been really successful but because they 
didn't have the same resources. And, you know, Disney was its own studio and they were working with Paramount who kind of pushed them out. They weren't able to achieve that. And now none of us get Betty Boop versus Mechacilla. Yeah. Uh, And the Fleischers themselves, their careers kind of didn't really go anywhere. I mean, they both continued working sporadically in Hollywood. Max Fleischer ended up working in educational films and toward the end of his life actually did regain the rights to Betty Boop. Uh, Dave Fleischer worked as a technical advisor with various Hollywood studios. And I think the most notable thing that he did later in his career is he directed uh, Let's All Go to the Lobby, the very, very famous, Mm. you know, movie theater ad that they still show in movie theaters now. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of heavy hitters involved with this thing. You know, Um, Joe Aurelio, who played the Italian barber, was the co-creator of Casper the Friendly Ghost and Felix the Cat. He was the creator of that. You know, all of these musicians were uh, or composers, they, they were huge songwriters of the day. Leo Robin uh, won an Oscar in 1938 for Thanks for the Memories, uh, the Bob Hope song, Thanks for the Memory. And uh, yeah, just a lot of talent involved that I think just couldn't do their best work. Yeah. I mean, as we said, some of the voice actors here too, Pinto Kolvig, of course, who voices Gabby, was the original voice of Goofy. He did continue to voice Gabby in those short films. He voiced uh, Bluto in the Popeye short films. He played Bozo the Clown, and he even did a Munchkin voice in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, uh, Jack Mercer, another voice actor in this film, was the second, I think, voice actor to play Popeye. He also uh, did the voices, all the voices, every single voice in the entire Felix the Cat cartoon series. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, incredibly talented people, uh, Lanny Ross and Jessica Dragonette, who do the, the singing voices of The Prince and the Princess, had uh, very popular songs in the 1940s. So, I mean, a lot of people they recruited who were working steadily, like you said, in animation and voice work and whatever, and, you know, have some iconic, I mean, you know, the voice of Goofy, we can still hear it in our heads. And that's something that Pinto Colvin created. I, I actually see the guy who plays the voice of Goofy every summer at the Cordillera Film Festival. He's like the chair. Forget it. It's Bill. Is his oh, the, the current a, voice of Goofy. Yeah. Yeah. He's a lovely not, guy. Not Pinto Colvin's ghost. No, um, <laughs> he's a real, he's a real good guy. Bill Farmer. He's just a lovely gentleman. And, um, he is proud of his work and he, as well as he should be, but he knows like he, he's part of film and pop culture history. Right. And I'm sure, you so. know, that's something where you get that gig and you go back and you study what Pinto Kolvig did in the very earliest goofy shorts so that you can capture that. So Josh Pinto Kolvig, uh, you, you, we've spoken about, but what's weird is the guy who played the voice of Gulliver as talking was Sam Parker. He was a radio announcer and he won a contest out of like 500 contestants to play Gulliver. It's very strange, especially considering that the names that they were throwing around to play Gulliver, which I think would have elevated this film because you would have had to give him more material were Bing Crosby and Gary Cooper. Yeah. And I mean, Sam Parker not only does the voice of Gulliver, but because they used rotoscoping, he is the physical presence of Gulliver as well. So especially if they had gotten someone like Bing Crosby or Gary Cooper, who's a recognizable screen star, that would have made a, a massive difference in how this movie was presented. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, Gulliver and David Bowie singing Peace on earth. Man, how many different figures from pop culture can we throw in alongside Gulliver here? I mean, what choice do we have, Josh? Um, 
Some of those songs, though, did go on for famous studios. You know, uh, it's a hap, hap, happy day and all as well. But, you know, I keep knocking Faithful and Forever at words just called Faithful Forever. But both Glenn Miller and Judy Garland covered it. I think those would have been interesting to hear. Yeah, probably better than the versions that ended up in this film. Um, I think so. As we said, Gulliver's Travels uh, has a very extensive yet crappy history of adaptation i feel like there's never really been a <laughs> there's not a good right. one is there? exactly i mean this this as i said there were previous ones and the melies film is is good but it's you know again it's four minutes there's barely anything to it in terms of a plot um there are you know some more well-known versions there's a 1977 film starring richard harris uh in 1996 you know jason you complain that nobody does the full book there was a tv miniseries starring ted danson as Gulliver, which does adapt the entirety of the story, but it looks like is probably not very good, but it gets it all in there at least. Um, and I have seen the 2010 film starring Jack Black as Gulliver, which just does the Lilliput section and is very uh, comedically focused and is is bad. You know, Josh, I think you just you just hit it again, man, um, dude. Limited series, you know, get get one of these, uh, you know, get a David Lowry, get someone here that that's really creative. And let's go to town on this thing. Imagine if uh, um, the team behind like Station Eleven did a Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, because, again, it's in the public domain. Anyone could give that a shot right now. And I wonder if maybe it's just got too much baggage or something and too, too many bad versions of it that no one wants to try to do their own only to fail. Um, I guess I, I guess my pitch would be like, what what do you know about Gulliver's Travels? And everyone would say, well, he was a giant compared to the Lilliputians, and they tied him up. And then you would just say, well, did you know about the sentient horses or the flying creatures or the fact that he was actually in a land full of giants? You know, like there's so much more material to be mined. Here. Yeah, and and it could be. Um, I mean, the other thing is that, like a lot of public domain material, there are a lot of sort of loose spin-offs or rip-offs that just slap the name on it or use the concept of it and uh, create some sort of story. I uh, I think a year or two ago watched this awful animated movie called Gulliver Returns that was actually produced in, in Ukraine and was allegedly co-written by Vladimir Zelensky, who of course mm. was in the entertainment industry in the Ukraine before becoming the president there. And uh, is very, very bad. I watched like an English dub of it for my column that I write about uh, VOD releases. But, you know, anyone can grab Gulliver and some of these elements and throw together some sort of story, no matter who you are, and uh, not a and guarantee of quality, certainly. I got one more fun fact for you, Josh. Ooh, fun fact. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm full of them. This was the first film in which voice actors were actually credited. Well, they should be credited, really. That's that. Well, I know. I shouldn't even have to say that. Right. But before this, they had never had credits. Right, so. right. Yeah, that's a shame. I wonder how long it took Disney to credit their voice actors because, uh, you know, they're they're the gold standard there. Yeah. So here's here. I'll give you one more, Josh, mm. a bonus fun fact. Uh, just reading this. Uh, I pulled this from Wikipedia. Inspired by the findings of social workers in juvenile courts that scores of young black children had never seen a motion picture, producer Max Fleischer teamed up with the movie theater owners 
Mitchell Wolfson and Sydney Meyer to ensure that underprivileged children in Miami's black community were able to see the movie. That's pretty cool. I think they had like a thousand kids who had never seen a movie come see this one. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, and you know, the fact that we we assume now that this is a major thing for kids, but animated feature films barely had existed at this point. And so, you know, to get something that was made specifically for kids and done in this manner and um, get those kids to see it is pretty cool. Gulliver. All right. That's Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, travel on over to our presence online and on social media. First, travel the letterbox and find me at Go for Jason. Then go take a nap. And if you still want to go for more, I'm at Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. We're awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Gulliver's X. Gulliver's Twitter. <laughs> you can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signalbleed on Twitter X and on Blue Sky and on Letterboxd, where you can also tag your reviews. Awesome movie year if you watch this or any other movie that we talk about. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm sure there's some fans of those terrible Gulliver's Travels adaptations throughout the years. <laughs> I feel like anytime we mention something terrible, there are some fans of it in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. It's a given. So, Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, far be it from me to announce your pick. I rest the floor to you, sir. Much like uh, Mr. Smith. I yield. Yes, yeah. I yield to you. Thank you, Mr. Smith. My pick is George Cukor's The Women, a favorite of mine, which I've seen a couple times and I'm looking forward to watching again. So tune in next time for The Women. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.